Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, October 31st, 2013, Reformation Day. It has been a busy week. You ever have that feeling like the faster you go, the more behinder you get? Yeah, I know it's bad English, but it's a phrase I heard somewhere kind of describes how I'm feeling at the moment. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. We slow down, we stop, we open up our Bibles and compare what people are saying, especially uber-popular folk out there, megachurch pastors, uh, popular authors, speakers, uh, people who make the comments. Conference circuit in major evangelicalism, things like that, or folks like that, in order to see if what they're telling us is actually what God's Word says. And sadly, um, there is a shortage of sound biblical exegesis within the biblical church, or within the visible church, and there is, um, uh, well, how do you put it, an epidemic of narcissistic, completely off-topic, not handling God's Word, just doctrinal blech. That is uh, taken over, and what gets obscured when that happens? The cross, the, the the biblical gospel, the message that we all need to hear, and the message that we're well dying to hear. That uh, we now have peace with God through what Christ has accomplished on the cross by suffering vicariously in our place on the cross and taking the wrath of God upon Himself, so that we might live. Uh, we don't hear the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Nearly enough, and, and sadly in many churches, rarely if at all. And uh, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you know that today I uh, dusted off a document that um, I, I put together five years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in fact, we uh, I talked about it on the air five years ago with uh, Pastor Bill Swirla of uh, Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, and uh, at that time, you know, it was a document, a new 95 theses, if you would, uh, challenging the excesses of American evangelicalism. Now, uh, part one of that document, or version one of that document, uh, had an axe that uh, that uh, kind of ground towards uh, what was happening in the LCMS at the time, 
And you know, I you know, and in preparation for Reformation Day last year, we uh, we sent out a link to a whole bunch of free resources that you can download on the internet for Reformation Day. Uh, this year, you know, I, I kind of labored over it and, and thought, you know, it was time to take out that old document and uh, and revisit it and uh, reboot it, if you would. Um, and uh, and and re- revise the document in light of the fact that uh, you know five years later, uh, this, you know again, uh, uh, fighting for the faith in pirate Christian radio has now been around for five years. Uh, that five years later, um, you know what I know about the seeker-driven movement is um, well far more focused, uh, far more clear than uh, even what I knew five years ago. And what I knew five years ago was enough to. Uh, you know, make it so that I was sounding the alarm back then, and so took the document out and um, edited it, it extensively, and uh, you know, kind of re-upped the language and you know, kind of brought everything up to speed and uh, refocused it, it exclusively on the excesses within evangelicalism that we cover here at Fighting for the Faith, and it has been well received, and uh, you'll uh, you, you'll see it in the podcast feed as a PDF document. Uh, with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. So if uh, if you don't follow me on Facebook and Twitter, then you'll have an opportunity to download it as a PDF. And it, we, I've been uh, receiving notes from uh, college students uh, who uh, are in Christian college campi uh, saying that they've uh, printed out co- copies of it and put it on the kiosks at uh, at their uh, at, at their campuses and uh, and what I'm hoping is, <laughs> is that somebody prints a few of these things out and like well you can't nail it to now you see I see that's the thing if you, if you were to go and nail these things to the wall of a mega church um, that would be bad I in fact I I say don't do that uh, do something that <laughs> is going to destroy their door um, and you know maybe duct tape you know <laughs> duct tape the new 95 theses uh, to the door of uh, of a mega church something like that that you know <laughs> in and uh, if you do that, send me a photograph on Facebook or Twitter. I might uh, <clears throat> send that out to let other people know that you've done that. But anyway, so it's Reformation Day, and I'm of the firm belief that we are in need of another Reformation. And that's not going to happen with uh, people who uh, – that's not going to happen as long as people are unwilling to have the tough conversation or unwilling to say the tough things that need to be said. Uh, as long as uh, people are unwilling to, uh, you know, to confront the false doctrine and the false mythologies that are posing as uh, Christian doctrine within their churches, as long as people are not willing to speak the truth, and uh, and it, you know, then what's going to ha- continue to happen is the status quo. It's it's going to continue to be syncretistic. And so, um, you know, let's just put it this way. If you're waiting for a reformation in the church going, I hope one sure happens. I, yeah, that'd be really nice. I'm, whoo, yeah, I'm really excited about the idea that maybe God is going to send a reformation. Um, may I challenge you? Um, this is not a spectator thing. Um, what I strongly recommend that you consider doing is praying, teaching, proclaiming, Jumping into the fight yourself and uh, and being willing to uh, take the hit, uh, you know that's that's what it takes. You know, it's it's this is not a you know Christian theology, evangelism, and making disciples. This is not a spectator sport. Uh, this is something that we're all involved in. And uh, you know, Christ has said to the church, "Go and make disciples of all nations." And so you don't have to go to uh, Africa to do it. I mean, you hear something like that, you go, "Oh, great, I got to go to Africa." No, uh, you know. You you be in a nation, <laughs> so 
uh, you need to do it. Now, one of the things I'm working on, and I, I pray that I get the time to finish these, uh, it's going to take a little bit of time, we're still kind of in the advanced phases of this, is something that I'm calling the viral Bible study. And um, it's not one study, it's a, it's a series of studies, Bible studies that you can print out and uh, and you know sh- share in a small group setting or one on one or a father teaching his uh, family at the dinner table, and it's the basics, you know, basic core doctrines of the Christian faith. And um, with the caveat of this is that when you're teaching it, um, or, or how do I put it? Let me think of the better way to put it this way: when you're being taught it, you are agreeing before you're being taught that what you're going to learn you're going to teach somebody else. So that that's the concept behind the viral Bible study. And uh, again, we're, it'll probably be first of the year before we have that out. But uh, so the idea is this, is that, uh, you know, I was thinking back to, um, you know, back in the day, you know, you know, what have been a, some effective ways in which I've been taught things? And, um, you know, back in the day, you know, when I was a young pup uh, working in corporate America, um, my boss, you know, took a look at my <clears throat> time management habits and decided that um, I needed some professional help. And uh, so my boss, he paid for me uh, to and, you know, paid and sent me to this probably the best way to put it is I had no choice. I, you know, I was ordered to attend uh, a Franklin Covey time management, uh, you know, day planner seminar thing. And um, and for me, that was actually something that really helped because it, it it gave me some some kind of a strategy for organizing my day and uh, you know organizing my to do lists. Uh, and figured out a way to say, okay, these are things you're not going to do, so stop putting those on your list. These are the things you need to be doing because they're important. You know, it gave, it gave me a great way of doing it. And um, what I thought was effective, you know, and you know, because I had never heard of you know the Franklin Covey time management system, is that um, the gal who ran our you know you know our day planner uh, session, you know, she said, okay, in order for this to sink in. Okay, in order for what you've learned to sink in, you must teach one other person within, you know, a few days, you know, uh, what it is that you've learned, because by teaching somebody else, it 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 goes deeper into your mind. And I thought, yeah, that was actually kind of an interesting thing. So I did. You know, I, I went home and I, I taught my wife my time management system. Of course, she was, you know, she almost went Pentecostal on me. She was so thrilled with the fact that I was learning how to manage my time. <clears throat> anyway, uh, but, uh, you know, but <laughs> that's a whole nother story. But, you know, so I taught her. And she's like, oh, that's great, honey. That's just fantastic. And so uh, yeah, the, this is the idea behind the viral Bible study. There'll be a series of Bible studies on the core basics of the Christian faith, as well as some apologetic kind of stuff. You know, as, you know how, how do we know that uh, Jesus is a real person and that this, the Gospels were not written by drunken monks, you know, in the fourth century, things like that. And, uh, you know, we'll put that all together in a series of Bible studies with with this proviso, that when you are being taught it, you are agreeing to teach it to somebody else. That's the idea. So think of it as, you know, one of those chain letter kind of things. But the idea, it's not a gimmick. It, the, it, it, the, here's the idea behind it, 
is is that when you learn something like this, when you know when you really walk through the basic tenets of the faith, and you've got the core biblical underpinnings behind it, that that is something that actually helps you and helps grow your faith and gives you some kind of a framework that you can you know to understand particular things, uh, right doctrine versus uh, false doctrine and things like that. But when you teach somebody else those same things. Uh, when you teach somebody else what the Bible teaches about that, it takes your understanding of it even deeper because the discipline of actually preparing you know, a lesson and preparing your mind to teach somebody else and having to explain it to, him, to them is, is a whole other way in which you learn it. Um, you know, in fact, you know, where I learned how to, uh, to teach God's Word uh, well, where I learned God's word is in teaching God's word, and and where I and where I taught God's word the most was at the dinner table uh, to my family. And, uh, you know, you know that was a very you know key part of learning God's word was by teaching it to my family. So that's one of the things that we're uh, we're working on. You know, pray for us as we're putting that all together. So. <laughs> my plate's a little bit full. You, you get what I'm saying. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We are going to – we're going to be all over the place today. Um, yeah, this is one of those uh, programs where it's going to feel like there's not a theme. Um, there is a theme, but it's not it's, – it's not easy to figure it out. You know, All of these things have something in common, but we'll, we'll kind of work through this. So what we're going to start off with today – we're going to start off with a Patricia King Gang-esque uh, update. Um, we're going to be uh, listening to Mike Bickle of IHOP. Um, and yes, Mike Bickle is, it runs in pretty much the same stream of the charismatic movement that uh, Patricia King runs in. And we're going to be listening to Mike Bickle teach us regarding the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Are they real or fake? And you are going to be shocked by what you are going to hear. Um, so, you know, get ready. Uh, this is one of those things where... If I were to just read you the quote, you would think that the quote was coming from uh, the Strange Fire Conference, but it's not. <laughs> now, it was mentioned at the Strange Fire Conference, but I want you to hear it for yourself. Um, and then when we come back, uh, from there we're going to probably take a break. When we come back from the from the break, we're going to uh, listen to a little bit of Kong Hee from uh, City Harvest Church out there in, uh, in uh, Singapore. And... Um, the name of the message is called Counting Your Stars. We're not going to listen to the whole thing, but I want you to listen to what he says and how he handles, uh, well, mishandles God's Word. And I might revisit this because there's two different uh, you know, ways to cut on this particular message by Kong Hee, but I, I found this absolutely fascinating, worth passing along in the sense of teaching you this is not what God's Word says. And, uh, and then what we'll do is we'll do a Stephen Furtick update where I'll play for you uh, a portion of uh, Stephen Furtick's um, uh, defense of himself uh, that he gave at the 5 o'clock service uh, on Sunday uh, to the elevators over there at Elevation Church. And then in hour number two, we're going to uh, switch gears, and uh, we're going to be going to a, a church called Real Life Church, and um, we're going to be listening to a guest uh, pastor be preaching at Real Life Church, Vince Antonucci of The Verve in... Um, in Las Vegas, and uh, he's going to be uh, he, he's going to be delivering the sermon entitled YOLO. You know that means you only live once, and the name of the sermon is Renegade. And as promised earlier in the week, we're going to use this sermon review 
to unpack the uh, and debunk, if you would, the seeker-driven misreading and misapplication of Hebrews 11.6, which says, without faith it's impossible to please God. Over and again, within the seeker-driven movement, what you see is them using this passage to say that if you're not a huge risk-taker, if you're not doing something that, you know, if you know you don't have some big dream for your life that is so big that you can't accomplish it, that that means that you're not pleasing God. That's how they misuse Hebrews 11.6, and Vincent Antonucci in the sermon does that exact thing. And so we'll actually take the time to take a closer look at uh, Hebrews 11, verse 6, to understand what it is, what, what is really meant when Scripture says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. What is it talking about there? Is it talking about being a risk taker? And that if you're not a risk taker, you know, with some huge you know, task given to you by God that you can't possibly achieve on your own, that uh, that you're not pleasing God? The answer is no, but we'll, we'll give you the explanation as to why that is uh, during our sermon review today. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, and since we're doing a Patricia King gang-esque, I'm you know, kind of using... You know, a broader category here. Update that requires me to do this. So, uh, what percentage of um, manifestations of the Holy Spirit do you think are real? How much? How many? How much? What percentage of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit do you think that those within the charismatic movement think are real? Well. To answer that question, we're going to be listening to a uh, a portion of a series of videos put out on YouTube by the official Mike Bickle. Uh, you can find these at YouTube.com and then type in in the search box, Manifestations of the Spirit, colon, real or fake, Mike Bickle's perspective. Okay, Mike Bickle is the head of IHOP, the International House of Prayer, uh, which is known for its manifestations, signs and wonders uh, regarding the Holy Spirit. It's It's clearly within the mainstream of the charismatic movement. Well, um, if like I said, if I were to read to you the quote that you're going to listen to, you would think that the quote that I was reading from was John MacArthur, but it's not. Listen in as Mike Bickle explains to us uh, yeah, just how much of the uh, manifestations of the Spirit are real within the charismatic movement. Here we go. Perspectives. Perspective number one, that when the Holy Spirit touches people in a genuine way, and I really value the genuine touch of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's one reason IHOP exists, not the only reason. We want to see more of the authentic move of the Holy Spirit. I've been a defender of the authentic. I mean, for not the whole 40 years, because those first 10, I was a little bit bewildered. I was excited, but a little bewildered by what was going on. But the last 30, I have been a very staunch defender. And I've lost a few friendships over it. Because I know that I know the value of genuine manifestations. They're real. Again, I've seen, and I've had it happen to me, but I've seen people thrashed around, and I've seen people thrown against walls and across rooms, and, and I've seen a lot of fake, but I've seen a lot of real. The real's worth it. I He's seen a lot of fake, and he's seen a lot of real, but the real's worth it. Now, this is the, the, uh, the typical... 
you know, charismatic concept here. Well, you know, the, yeah, there's a lot of fakes and phonies in there, but we, you, you can't really criticize that because if you criticize that, then you're going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Remember uh, Phil Johnson's lecture yesterday. Uh, you're going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta put up with the fake because the real shows up, you know, you know, and you don't want, you don't want to miss that. You gotta, you gotta value that. Now, here's the, um, the question I have for you. What in the Bible would lead us to believe that God the Holy Spirit is going to for real show up with for real manifestations in a movement where the vast majority of the manifestations of the Spirit aren't real and they are fake and people are making it up? Why would God the Holy Spirit show up with the real in, a, in, a, in the midst of a movement where there's so much fake? Why would God want to validate the fake? It doesn't make any sense. So, and then the question is, well, by what standard is Mike Bickle deciding what's fake and what's real? But let's continue listening. You will allow the fake. I don't want the fake on the platform because I, I, I don't want to promote the fake. But I'll allow the fake in the room because I so believe in the genuine. I've had people say that over the years. You know, they said, you know, you know I've had students. You know, some of this seems fake. I go, it is. They go, what? I go, most of it's fake. Did you catch that? Most of its fake. Most. That would be greater than 50% of the manifestations in the spirit, according to Mike Bickle, are fake. This is not coming from John MacArthur. This is not coming from Stephen Lawson. This is not coming from, you know, some raving, you know, cessationist Calvinist. This is coming from Mike Bickle. Most of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the charismatic movement, according to Mike Bickle, are fake. What do you mean? I said, I've been watching this 40 years. Most places that I've been, the majority of the manifestations are not caused by the Holy Spirit. They go, really? But I said, but the problem is, it's not all fake. And the genuine is in our midst. And I will allow a whole lot of hamburger helper to allow the genuine take place. I said, does this make any biblical sense to you at all? If, you know, He's saying the vast majority of what he sees out there and where he what he's experienced is fake, fake, phony. People are being deceived into believing that God, the Holy Spirit, is the one at work. And yet he's the one saying, well, I'm going to allow that to happen. I'm going to allow people. To, I'm going to put up with those people who are deceiving others using false manifestations of the spirit because, well, the real is among us, too. This makes absolutely no sense. And nowhere in Scripture does it say, you know, to do this. You know, in fact, Scripture makes it very clear that those who are twisting God's word, they are devoid of the Spirit. And false manifestations deceive people into believing that God the Holy Spirit is working amongst them and doing these crazy things, you know, howling at the moon, barking, uncontrollable laughter, and he says being thrown against the wall and other things like that. That doesn't sound like God the Holy Spirit at all if you read your Bible. But, oh, we got to be careful because, yeah, there's a lot of fake. The majority of it's fake, but see, the real is among us. Why would the real be among those who are faking? That doesn't make any sense at all. Not biblically, not logically, not lucidly. There's no category for this. I mean, let's continue, though. This is very educational. Like I said, if I had just read the quote, you would have thought that I was reading from a raving Calvinist cessationist, but I'm not. I won't promote it, but I will allow it because the genuine is so important to the kingdom of God. 
But that always throws off people if they're young and new at this. They go, it is fake. I go, yeah. I go, just, you know, don't be so open-minded. Your brains fall out. You can understand that the real and the genuine and the fake all exist together in one setting. And it's that way everywhere. There's nothing unique here. It's not any different. Why would that be? Oh, man. I mean, so... Well, somebody's over here manifesting the Holy Spirit. Well, uh, according to Mike Bickle, uh, chances are 80 to 90% that it's totally fake. Totally, 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 totally fake. But then there's that, you know, you know, 10, 20% chance. Well, well maybe that's real. But we got, you know, so we don't want to, we'll, we'll allow for that fake stuff because the real will show up from time to time. Oh, man. This is insanity. Absolute insanity. And another reason why you should not be caught up in movements like this. They do not rightly understand the Holy Spirit. He is flat out confessed that what we're seeing is are not manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And he, knowing that they're not true manifestations of the Spirit, says that he will allow for them. Oh, you know, because because uh, he knows that, you know, that the, the true manifestations are very important to the kingdom of God without any biblical text that say that. Um, and so, therefore, we just got to put up with the... The false, and the majority of it's false. Huh. Does this make any sense to you? doesn't make any sense to me at all. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Have a Kong Hee update and a Stephen Furtick update. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. The management of Marty Python's Flying Circus Church would like to again apologize. Normally we try to do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, the church continues to just parody itself. Case in point, Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed shofar CD. This is a real commercial. When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as 
Rabbi Zeitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Zeitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the end time judgments about to be unleashed on planet earth. Don't miss out on getting both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural. For a donation of $25, shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Call or write today. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted... It's a Star Trek uniform. But it's red. What are you trying to say? It was the only colored wool fabric I had. Uh, try it on. It's, uh, really itchy. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, according to Mike Bickle, the vast majority of manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the charismatic movement are fake. Why would you want to be a part of something like that? Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring 
Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support, because we truly cannot do what we are doing here uh, without it. Moving along... That's right, it's time for a money-grubbing televangelist update. And today we're going to be looking at yeah, the message of Kong Hee. I want that green ammunition, that's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits, I'm a demon in addition. Give me shackles, give me pesos, let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. Wanna get me a suit that's made out of oof and whistle for wearing and green. I got that monetary itis like speeches like King Midas. Want that golden touch is what I mean. Give me that old double eagle. Want that tender that is legal and financially substantially. And there's some I can and beagle. Want a living regal splendor for that loving legal tender. Money, 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 money. Greenback collector, I'm a paper bill inspector, I'm a savage for that cabbage man to me is golden nectar. Pour that filthy lucre on me, spread those loving germs upon me. Money, 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 money. And if they ever plant trees of enormous room, I wanna be the guy that they send out to Brewerum. Oh, give me money! Yeah, there we go. Dr. T then money. 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 Now, what's fascinating to me is um, you, you can't see what I'm seeing as I'm playing this, but uh, you can find this at konghee.com. He has a video uh, Vimeo channel, and you can look at the broadcast archives. Uh, the name of the uh, the message is Counting Your Stars, Counting Your Stars. And uh, and it begins with him and Sung Ho, his wife, kind of introducing the topic for the day. And, again, it's just a perfect, a, well, a succinct Summary of the false gospel that's masquerading in so many of the seeker-driven churches. Now, Kong He is one of these guys who's kind of in the charismatic version of the seeker-driven movement. You know, you know, gone overboard. And of course, the reason why I play the money-grubbing televangelist update music for him is because he and his wife and <clears throat> former uh, members of the staff of City Harvest Church out there in Singapore are on trial. Currently, in the trials, like part way through, I think they are taking a recess from it for a little bit of time, um, for embezzling something to the tune of twenty million or more dollars from the church's uh, finances to fund Sung Sung Ho's uh, singing career. Uh huh. You know, they put her up in a you know large mansion in Hollywood and. You know, an expensive flat, I think, in New York, and then you know, lots and lots of money for her, <clears throat> for her recording, uh, you know, uh, video 
that she did with uh, some famous, you know, rapper, you know, hip hop type artist. So, but listen to this particular message. This this should sound very familiar to a lot of you, but we'll it'll tease this out as we go. So, without any further ado, here is Kong Hee and Sung Ho on uh, counting your stars. Here we go. All throughout history, we see how powerful dreams define reality. Great dreamers have influenced their communities, their societies, their countries, and the world. Galileo dreamed of a world that is round instead of flat. And in spite of the harshest criticisms, he revolutionized the way we look at our solar system today. The Wright brothers took what seemed like an impossible fantasy and make real what many of us could only dream about, flying. And from the Bible, we read about how Abraham also had an impossible dream, to have a son when he was already a hundred years old. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so in the Bible, he Abraham had an impossible dream to have a son when he was already a hundred years old. To dream the impossible dream... Um, man. Uh, no, it's not that he had a dream to have a son. He had a direct word from God, a direct promise from God that he would have a son. And that through him, Abraham, the, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And the fulfillment of that ultimately points us to Christ because Abraham is in the uh, genetic line of the Messiah. But listen to the way these, you know, they're twisting this. You know, basically, the story of Abraham is about a great dreamer like Galileo or the Wright brothers. Hoy. Because his desire was a God-given one. A miracle took place and turned his dream into a reality. Stay tuned as we take a moment to worship God before we go into the Word. Yeah, now what they do on this television program of theirs is they, you know, you know after they do the, you know, their little introduction... You know, they, they go into praise and worship time, so you get to kind of sit in and, uh, and you know, watch them as they're, they're singing their 7-Eleven praise songs. And, of course, then you got the obligatory commercial, you know, for the latest thing that they're selling in order to, uh, <clears throat> you know, move product, if you know what I mean. But then as soon as they're done with that, uh, they move into, uh, you know, Kong Hee uh, preaching and teaching. So, and the, the thing that's fascinating to me is watching this video as, as I'm as I'm playing the audio for you. City Harvest Church is packed. Why the people of City have, Harvest Church haven't fled from you know this church in Kong He after they fleeced them to the tune of twenty million dollars is absolutely beyond me. Um, why they're standing by? Well, maybe maybe the reason why they're doing this is because he's scratching itching ears. Because this isn't a, a real biblical teaching. So here's Kong He now to explain to us how we can be dreamers the way that Abraham was a dreamer from um, Genesis chapter 15. Here, listen in. Hallelujah. Will you please turn your Bibles with me to Genesis 15? And I'm so excited to share this word with you because it's been incubating in my spirit for one year. And uh, last weekend in Siduaj. One whole year incubating in your spirit. Wow. Uh, what? So it's like, you know, like a smoked sausage or something like that, you know, it's been incubating for a while. I preached for the first time and we had really a move of God and I know that this message is meant for each one of us in City Harvest. So Genesis 15 
If you have not brought your Bible, give your neighbor a big smile and they'll be so happy to share God's word with you. Let's look right now. It says in verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This one shall not be your heir, but the one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted to him for righteousness. God came to Abraham in a vision and said, Abraham, do not be afraid. When you have a vision, you can become very fearful. Okay. The thing I liked about this particular presentation on the part of Kong He is he doesn't have the moves down very well. At least you can actually see uh, the, the what we call the heresy two-step. Um, what he does is, you know, he think of it as a dance move. He lays down a biblical text and no sooner does he lay it down that he shimmies back and then over to the side and see he forgot to shimmy back he just went straight from the biblical text to talking about you so this the biblical text here genesis chapter 15 has nothing to do with you and your dreams and visions for your life nothing whatsoever to do with your dreams and visions. This is about Abraham believing God and God accounting it or crediting it to him as righteousness. And this is important for us because the scriptures teach us that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Let me um, let me read to you, you know, using this concept that scripture interprets scripture. Let me read to you what Romans chapter 4 says tells us about Abraham and this particular event. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then uh, that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? Um, Or according to our forefather, what he gained according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified, that means to be declared righteous. If Abraham was justified by works, well, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So here's the idea, is that Romans chapter 4 interprets for us Genesis chapter 15, and this is all about salvation by grace alone through faith alone. See, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And in the same way, we believe God. We believe God that God forgives sins. 
for the sake of Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. We believe the good news that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them, and that God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. We believe that word of God. We believe that we are forgiven because scripture says that we're forgiven because of what Christ has done for us. We can't see that forgiveness. We can't quantitatively cut it up or anything like that. We believe it because God's word says it and we believe what God says and it is counted and credited to us as righteousness. So as uh, Romans 4, 4 says, to the one who works, well, his wages are counted as a gift, uh, not as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, you know, listen, don't try to earn your salvation. This is what this is saying. You can't earn it at all, not by any works. In fact, if you think your works can save you, well, you're damned. To the one who does not work but believes and trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, that would be you, that would be me, his faith is credited or counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom count, uh, God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was credited or counted to Abraham as righteousness. Well, then how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The promise was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham that he had before he was circumcised. So the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, and in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so that your so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted for us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the story of Abraham there in Genesis 15 is not a story of, you know, of having a dream. 
for your life. It's the story of a man who believed the promises of God and was justified and saved solely by grace through faith. That's what's going on in, in Genesis chapter 15, and Romans 4 helps us unpack that. But Kong He is completely oblivious to this because this is a man who's not qualified to be teaching. Let's continue and listen what, to what Kong He does with this passage. A vision requires faith. I've been a Christian now for 36 years. And in 36 years of walking with Jesus Christ, I have learned that faith, visions, and dreams are synonymous. No, they're not. No, they're not. They are absolutely not. Faith, vision, and dreams are not synonymous. And notice here, now he's not pointing us to the thing that we can hang on to, the promises of our salvation, one for us in Christ, which is what the New Testament points us to, and even that this Old Testament story points us to. No, no, no. Um, you, If you have a dream or vision, you have to have faith that it's going to happen. This is not saving faith that he's talking about, yet this passage is about saving faith. When you have faith, you will have visions and dreams. And when you have visions and dreams, you will have faith. Because if they are not risky and scary, there's no need for you to trust in the Lord. If they're not risky and scary, there's no need for you to trust in the Lord. Now hold this thought. If they're not risky and scary, there, there's no reason for you to trust in the Lord. This we will talk about in more depth during our sermon review today. Uh, it, this is a misapplication and a misreading and a very dangerous one at that of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But I want you to hear this theme because it's, it's in Kong He's sermon, and you'll hear it in the Renegade sermon by Vince Antonucci in hour number two. But we continue. Now, God gave Abraham a big vision. When he was 75 years old, God appeared to Abraham for the first time and said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you great. I'm going to make you a big nation. And through you, the whole world will be blessed. But Abraham was already 75 years old. He didn't even have a single son. How was he going to have a great many descendants where he didn't even have one boy? So now we come to Genesis 15, and Genesis 15 is 10 years after God had appeared to Abraham. Now usually Abraham wouldn't complain. He was a very humble servant of God. But now, under a small tent, he began grumbling and complaining to the Lord. He said, God, I'm 85 years old. You see, it's 10 years after God first appeared to him. I'm 85 right now. My wife is 75 years old. It is impossible for us to have children. You have given me a big estate and I will die. To whom shall I bequeath all my possessions? Every blessing you have given me will be wasted and my vision and dream will never become a reality. What happened? Abraham's mind was depressed. I have no more hope for the future, he said. I have now, notice, if you were to go and read this passage, you'll find that Kong He is inserting things into this text that are not there. He's adding to God's word, which is strictly forbidden by the scriptures. No more dream for my calling. I have no more faith in myself. I'm a childless old man who is dying away. He was totally negative. After God heard Abraham, like a good father, he probably 
laugh in his heart and say, Abraham, don't be so negative and don't be so fearful. Come out of your tent. Don't. Nowhere in this text does God say, stop being so negative. Notice the word of faith heresy rattling under the cage here. Stay under your tent. Your tent is so small and limited. It is limited in space. It's limited in time. It's limited in vision. You are living in a pure, natural, three-dimensional world. Come out of your tent and step into the fourth dimension of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, no, he's just straight up adding to God's word. Nowhere in Genesis 15 are you going to read anything about God saying, come out of your three-dimensional tent and step into the fourth dimension of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is wild, and it's evil. Into the realm, the invisible realm of the Spirit of God, step into the kingdom of God, look up into the sky, and start counting the stars. So Abraham came out and he looked up into the sky and he was amazed. There were so many, many stars shining everywhere. God said to him, Abraham, start counting the number of stars. Abraham started counting 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, 700, 800, 900, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 10,000, 50,000. He started counting. It was so innumerous, it was impossible to count. Now Abraham was swimming in the stars. And God said to him, Abraham, your children will be as numerous as the stars you can see in the sky. Suddenly, something great happened. Abraham stepped out the realm of a natural three-dimension world and came into the fourth dimension of the Spirit of God. Again, which biblical passage talks about this fourth-dimensional uh, spirit of the world? Of you know, I don't know what you're talking about. It's not there in Genesis. It's not there in Romans 4 either. He started to have hope as his mind expanded. Oh, I'm going to have this son. I, I can see I'm going to have this son. Oh, I'm going to see I can have this tribe. And I could have that tribe. You know, out of that, I could have this nation and that nation. Oh, I'm going to be a father of many nations. Hallelujah. His mind turned from being negative to very positive. He began to dream so many children crying out to him, Father Abraham. Father Abraham, Father, 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 Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. He was shaken with visions. Again, the scary thing is, is the thousands of people that are sitting there taking notes on this stuff. This is an absolutely sick, narcissistic twisting of the story of Abraham. It's not about you having dreams and visions. The faith of Abraham, we all share. And that is is that Abraham believed the promises of God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What's the promise of God that we have? Not that we're going to have a dream or a vision of some grand thing we're going to perform or some purpose or destiny. No, the, the promise of God that we all have is that God 
forgives us our sins because of what Christ has done, because he was crucified and died for our sins and was raised again for our justification. Romans 4 makes this clear. This is a false gospel that t- takes the story of Abraham and turns it into, well, you see, it's just like this. You know, Abraham had a dream and vision for his life, and you can have a dream and vision for your life, and you should expect that if you have faith. And, and you got to be positive, you know, the way Abraham was positive, and notice all the things that he's adding to this text. Absolutely deceitful beyond belief. ...with dreams... And his mind was filled with the visions and dreams for children and descendants. And he started to have faith in his heart. Oh God, if you have said so, I believe. I believe. Let it be to me according to your word. I believe. And then his words became very positive. He lost that vocabulary of negative thinking. I'm the father of many nations. My name will no longer be called Abraham. I'm now Abraham. My wife's name will no longer be called Sarai, but Sarah. And that is a flat-out twisting of God's word. Now to Sikang, he said, that, oh, the, the Abraham, he changed his own name to, you know, to Abraham from Abram and changed his wife's name from Sarah uh, Sarai to Sarah, because he was no longer engaging in negative thinking, but positive thinking. Uh, well, Genesis chapter 17 makes something very clear. Abram did not name himself Abraham. Abram did not name his wife Sarah. Listen to, listen to this text. Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to, to Abram and said to him, "'I am God Almighty.'" Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and shall and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring. Yeah, um, God is the one who changed Abraham's name. It was not Abraham who was engaging in positive thinking. Boy, is this a nasty Bible twist. Now, I'm going to pause there, but you get the idea of what's going on in this Kong He sermon. Um, standard, you know, seeker-driven, dream destiny, purpose, you got to believe in the vision and dream for your life message. Rather than trusting in God for the forgiveness of your sins, where we have sure and certain promises, now you're trusting God for some dream that he's supposed to fulfill in you, and nowhere in Scripture are you promised that anywhere. Complete mangling of God's word. Moving along. You walked up to the pulpit like you were a man of God. That's right. Stephen Furtick update. The beaver was fake and hot. You had 
probably think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. Don't you? Don't you? All right, so uh, we've been uh, covering these stories put out by WCNC in, Sh- in Charlotte, North Carolina, by Stuart Watson. Uh, today we will not be having a Stuart Watson installment, but what I want to do is play for you uh, the raw audio, or at least a portion of it, of uh, Stephen Furtick responding to the uh, I report regarding his 16,000 square foot home. Now let me go ahead and kill the music here. There we go. And so uh, without any further ado, here's Stephen Furtick from the 5 o'clock service this past Sunday at Elevation Church responding to the um, uh, the reports about his extremely large home. Here we go. Uh, how, sh- how shall I say this? Uh, there's been much conversation about our church and about me in our community over the last couple of days. And I want to take just a minute to speak to you from my heart about that. It's interesting um, how much you grow to love something when it came out of your heart. I guess moms understand that when something comes from you, you really love it. And the hardest part about this week for me, uh, quite honestly, with all of the different things, if, if you're new to uh, our city or the planet, uh, there were some news stories and um, some, some discussions this week about a home that me and Holly built. And the hardest thing about it for me, quite honestly, was knowing the conversations or imagining the conversations that many of you were probably having about your church with people that you love, with people that you work with, with family members. And I think especially for me, like teenagers going to school and college students that go to our church and having to have those conversations, um, that really bothered me. And it made me sad, and I am sorry that you had to have those conversations this week. Hmm, I see. So he's sorry that the elevators, those would be the people who attend Elevation Church, they're elevators, that they had to have awkward conversations this week. He's not sorry that um, he's building a 16,000-square-foot mansion. No, he's not sorry about that. He's not sorry about the fact that he's made a killing, um, you know, and, you know, engaged in financial monkey business, um, you know, not distinguishing between his 
his money and the church's money and their their efforts and his efforts. No, no, he's not sorry about that. He's not sorry about the fact that he tried to hide the fact that that's his home by having it purchased by uh, the, the Jumper Drive Trust. No, he's not. No, he's not sorry about that. He's sorry that the elevators had to have awkward conversations. Yeah, doesn't sound like much of an apology to me. I have always endeavored with everything within me to make this a church that you can always be very proud of. And um, thank you. And please be seated. It, uh, it bothered me a lot that this week I knew you weren't having conversations about how proud you were of your church. So I just want to take a moment, and this will be brief, because there's something else that I came to do. But I wanted to take a moment and just remind you of two things that I have always promised from the day I started this church with seven other families. All of those families are still a part of this church. And so they can tell you that from the very beginning, when we were meeting in living rooms and talking about this church, there were two promises that I made, and I just want to reinforce them to you today. Number one, I have always promised that this ministry would be a ministry of integrity. And I just want to be clear that we're all coming at this together from the same altitude because several people have said to me, y'all are funny, you'll come up in public and just say it. You're under attack, Pastor, and we've got your back. And while that means so much, um, I just want to say publicly, I don't call this an attack. I, I don't. The um, Sudanese refugees... Who are, who are being murdered and watching their children be murdered that you saw this summer in our outreach documentary that we work to help, they're under attack. That's an attack. Um, Levi Lusco, my friend who preached last weekend, who lost his five-year-old daughter a couple days before Christmas, he was under attack. That's an attack. This is a news story. And the media is not our enemy. They have the right to run any story they choose to run. And people have the right to have any opinion that they choose to have. That's okay. And Holly and I made a decision to build a house. It's a big house. It's a beautiful house. It's 8,400 square feet of heated living area. Now, <clears throat> notice that, okay? Now he's admitting the house is large. But what I find fascinating here, again, I've, I'm privy to the information. The slab, the concrete slab that the, that the house is sitting on, when you do the measurements, comes to 8,000 square feet. When you factor in the fact that there are two stories to the house, the house comes to 16,000 feet square feet he's going in he's saying well it's eight thousand something square feet of heated living space 
So it's a little south of 9,000 square feet of heated living space. Not all of the rooms are heated. So he, he's still engaging in obfuscation. He's still in, basically not wanting to go with the bigger number. Why? 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 I mean, this is just unbelievable for somebody who's, you know, trying to publicly apologize and stuff like that. Why does he why why did he put it in the name of the Jumper Drive Trust and try to hide the fact that it was his house? Why now that he's been called out and the media has clearly said it's a sixteen thousand square foot house? You just look at the plans. Oh well it's only not eight thousand something heated. You know again, these are games. These are these are games that he's playing. And I found it fa- fascinating at um, Dr. Duncan's, Dr. James Duncan of Anderson University. He did a couple of blog posts on this. And he makes the claim that when you when you crunch the numbers, he basically says that there's no way that Stephen Furtick could have purchased this house without using funds that he was making from his salary at the church. Duncan doesn't believe that the the math adds up for him to be able to purchase a $1.7 million house without him being able to pay for it using his salary. So, yeah, you can find it at the Pajama Pages. That's pajamapages.com. Uh, look that up. But, yeah, so it's kind of uh, interesting. It's... Um, a, a an apology, non-apology, and still at the same time, he's not really telling us the whole truth. Sad and absolutely um, tragic all at the same time. And I would remind you, I would remind you of the words of our Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ talks about wealth quite a bit. And he makes it very, very clear regarding, as Christians, what our view towards earthly treasure should be. And here's what he says. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now we know where... Stephen Furtick's treasure is. It's a very large house with only 8,000-something heated living space. Of course, you know, this to justify, you know, the 16,000, right? Uh, and, and of course, you know, he had to hide the fact that he's the one that uh, owns the house and all that kind of stuff and, and say, well, I bought it with the, with the money I made from my books. But when Dr. Duncan does the math, it turns out that it, he probably uh, – and <clears throat> there's no way he could have done that all with just the money he made from his books. Stephen Furtick is, is not telling us the truth. And where his treasure is, there his heart will be as well. This tells us a lot about the character of Stephen Furtick. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, sermon review. We'll be listening to a sermon entitled YOLO, Renegade. Yeah, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? 
Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted... It's a Star Trek uniform, but it's red. What are you trying to say? It was the only colored wool fabric I had. Uh, try it on. It's uh really itchy. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. We're going to be going to a church we have not gone to in our sermon reviews yet. But they may make a regular appearance. Details forthwith. And, uh, well, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's um, sermon comes to us via Real Life Church in Valencia, California. Newhall Ranch Road out there in Valencia. I'm, I know exactly where this place is. 
Today's sermon is from a sermon series entitled YOLO. That's right, you only live once. The sermon is delivered by Vince Antonucci, the uh, head seeker-driven vision casting leader of The Verve in Las Vegas. And it's entitled Renegade. Mm -hmm. And as promised, we'll be giving a more in-depth look at the uh, proper understanding of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But let me go ahead and kill the music here. And uh, without any further ado, here's Vince Antonucci, You Only Live Once, Renegade. Here we go. Thanks. You only live once, and so you need to be a renegade and take uh, risks and go against the norm. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. But first, I just want to say uh, I am so excited to be here. I love this church, and I'm so appreciative uh, of all the support that you've given us in getting our church started. Man, we have uh, people who are really far from God coming to Christ and having their lives changed like all the time. And you guys are a big part of that. So thank you so much for all the support that you've shown us, and I appreciate you guys so much much. So uh, last year, a missions organization invited my wife and I to come down to the Dominican Republic and see the missions work that they're doing there. And uh, we got one day to just be tourists and have fun. So we went on this uh, tour bus that takes you around to different fun spots around the island, lets you see a bunch of things in one day. There were about maybe 26 of us on the bus. And the problem was we all got in the bus and it started raining like pouring and it ruined the whole day. Like the first stop was at this nice beach and they said, you got two hours to go to the beach and no one left the bus. And they're like, do you just want to keep going? We're like, yes, please. And, and so it just kind of ruined everything. Now the big promise of this bus tour was that they would take you at the end of the day to the blue lagoon, which I was expecting to see like Brooke Shields and stuff, but she was not there. But, um, it was this beautiful blue lagoon with, uh, with rock cliffs around it and trees is gorgeous. And, and you get to swim in the blue lagoon. Well, we get there and everyone wants to at least see it. So we all got out of the bus in the rain. And it turns out that about 50 feet up on this cliff, there were benches and they were covered. So everyone kind of huddled onto these benches under the covering in the stay of the rain. And they're just all staring down at the Blue Lagoon. And we've got like an hour and a half or something to sit there. And so everyone's just sitting there and I'm looking around and we're all just looking at it. And, and I start thinking, man, these people don't want to just sit here. They don't want to look at the lagoon. They want to jump into it, but they think they can't because it's raining, because it's what everyone else is doing. We're all just sitting here. What what these people need is someone to give them permission. They need a a renegade who will go against the norm. And so I I did the manly thing. I, um, I told my wife to do it. Uh, <laughs> I, I did. I, I see. Uh, the, the deal is, my wife has what you might call a sweet personality. And she's the type. She's not going to rock the boat. She's not going to go against the the crowd or make anyone feel uncomfortable. Uh, I have uh, what you might call a personality disorder. <laughs> I, I'll do anything. I don't care. And so I would have just gone down and jumped in. Um, but I had my considerate husband hat on, and so I realized that if I just go down there and jump in, my wife's sitting up with like twenty five strangers. She's uncomfortable. I'm in trouble. And so I need to convince her to go down and jump in with me. And so I leaned into her and I said, "Yeah, we should just go and like jump in." And she said, "We can't." And I said, "Why not?" And she said, "It's raining. We'll get wet." I said, I'm pretty sure we'll get wet when we jump in anyway. It'll be fine. She said, well, we can't. I said, why not? She said, everyone else is just sitting here. I said, I know, but let's, let's go jump. We'll show them. And, and she said, but what will they think? 
I said, they'll think, why didn't we do that? She said, we can't. I said, why not? She said, those stairs look slippery. I said, man, I bet we'll make it. She said, I don't think. And so after a long time of this, finally I convinced her. And we uh, got up and she like kind of looked at everybody. And we very carefully made our way down the stairs. We got to the bottom. I knew she had to go first because if I jumped in, she never would. And, and so I said, you can do this. You can do this. She's like, mm-hmm. and I said, come on. And she said, oh, and she gave me this look like I'm going to kill you. And she ran and she jumped in and then her head popped out and she went, Woo! And, and I ran and I jumped in and I need to tell you, Swimming in the middle of the Blue Lagoon, in the middle of the Dominican Republic, in the pouring rain, awesome. I mean, totally worth it. And pretty soon, like six or seven of the people from up on the benches came down and they jumped in and they had a blast because really all they needed was permission. Today, I've come here to give you permission. I wrote a book that came out this year called Renegades in the Lobby, and and I wrote that book to give people permission. Because I'm convinced that so many people, so many Christians are just kind of sitting on the bench. You know, they're not doing what they want to do. They're not doing what they feel called to do, what God wants. Now, now I want to pause right there, and I want to interject, okay? I would agree with him to a point. And what I mean by that is, is, yeah, there's a lot of Christians who are sitting on the bench. But see, the thing is, is that... What are Christians called to do? What's the church called to do? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching all that Christ has commanded. So if if you need permission to do anything, let me give you permission to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins and raised again on the third day for our justification. Let me give you permission to you know to no longer sit on the sidelines but jump in and proclaim that tell it to your family tell it to your friends tell it to your coworkers call them to repent of their sins and to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ if that's what he was talking about i would have no problem with that you know go right ahead if that's what you're if you're waiting to and you need permission to do that now you have it and i even backed it up with scripture cuz that's what the church what we're all called to do go and tell people about jesus not tell them your personal life story because really that's not the gospel tell them what jesus did for them because that is the gospel we continue to do and maybe that's you And if that's you, you don't want to just sit there. You don't want to just kind of look at life passing you by. You want to jump into it, but maybe you feel like you can't. Maybe because, I mean, most everyone else is just kind of sitting here watching life go by. And it's easy to do what everyone else is doing. And what you really need is permission. Today, I hope to inspire you to jump. And I want to tell you that if you do... And it will be totally worth it. So what we're going to talk about is taking risks. To get off that bench and to jump, usually what's required is risk, right? And now- so uh, taking importance of risk-taking. Now, listen, again, I agree. Sharing the gospel, confronting sinners with their sins, and proclaiming Christ as the only way of salvation and what he's done for, the, for them on the cross and trust in Christ as the only way to be saved, that is really risky. It really is. It could cost you dearly, 
absolutely could cause you to suffer. You could lose your job. You could lose your marriage. You could lose friendships. And you can have family relationships completely strained to the max as a result of doing that. Yeah, it's a risk to do that. But they need to hear the good news of the gospel. So that's a risk worth taking. But is that what he's talking about? I don't know. Some people say, hey, hey, listen, because we have faith, we can take risks. You know, like, like faith in a big God allows us to take big risks. And I think that's true. But I would say it goes beyond that. I would actually say that faith doesn't just allow you to take risks. Faith actually requires you to take risks. In fact, I would say that faith is risk. So he would say that faith is risk. Really, faith is risk. In what sense is it risk? In you know, you know, we, we got a problem here. Is he's not really clearing his, clearly defining his terms. But we continue. And I think you know that you agree with that. Uh, you know that, that faith is risk. It's not just believing in something. There's faith. There, there's risk in faith as well. We know that. We just don't like to apply that definition to how we live out our Christianity. But but it's true. Faith is risk. Mm. Uh, what, like it, no, actually, faith is not risk. You can say faith is risky, but faith is not risk. Faith is trust. That's what faith is. That's what the Greek word pistis means, what the verb form pistuo means, to trust, to believe. That's what faith is. Faith can be risky, but it's not risk. We're standing on the top of a second-story building, right? A two-story building, and I was below, and I said, hey, jump. I'll catch you. You you can put your faith in me. How, How does that feel up there? right? You're scared, right? You're looking down at me going, I don't know, can he catch me? Right? It it feels scary. And the reason is you're being asked to put your faith in someone. And that's a risk. Faith is risk. Or if I came up to you and said, come on, come on, come on. No, no, it can be risky. It's not, again, the way he's using the English language here is problematic. Tell me all your secrets. I'm I'm talking like your dirtiest, you know, most hidden secrets. Tell them all to me. I won't tell anyone. But everyone you've ever told a secret, like they're Facebooking it, like they're they're tweeting it out, right? Like like if I asked you to do that, you'd be like, I don't know. Why? Because you're being asked to put your faith in someone. And that's scary because faith is risk. That's what faith feels like. Again, no, faith is risky, especially if the object of your faith is, you know, not worthy of that faith. Is risk. So in the Bible, God calls us to be faithful people. And a big part of what that means is that God's calling us to live risk-taking lives. So being a faithful Christian means uh, living a risk-taking life. Again, he's right to a degree, but you got to clearly define your terms. And what I mean by that is the risk that we're to take is to tell the truth about Christ. That can be risky. Yes, it can. God is looking for faithful people, which means that God is not looking for safe people. What God commends in the Bible are not safe people. What God commends and is looking for is a person who is willing to have a risk-taking faith. 
Like uh, there's a verse in the Bible in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Now listen to what he does with Hebrews 11, 6, and we'll spend a little bit of time clearing it up at this point. Listen in. On the screens, it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now notice something here. Um, he begins with, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. He begins with the conjunction, and. You remember, uh, you, you remember the old uh, schoolhouse rock Things conjunction, junction, what's that function, right? The job of a conjunction is to hook up phrases and clauses, okay? It connects them to each other. So he's quoting the verse out of context, Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. It begins with a conjunction, which means that that's a clause that's to be hooked up to a greater clause, well, let's see what he does with this out-of-context verse now. What does he say that it's saying now that he's ripped it from its context and isn't paying attention to the fact that the out-of-context verse that he's quoting begins with the word and? In other words, you cannot play it safe and please God. Without- okay, so that's his interpretation. Taking it out of context, in other words, Hebrews eleven six says you can't play it safe. And please God. Is that what the text says? Now, what we're going to do is we're going to read the text in context, and then I'm going to read for you Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on this passage to see what Dr. Paul Kretzman, who is an eminent Bible scholar, what he has to say about this text. Okay, Hebrews 11, 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are not seen. Now that, by the way, becomes the thesis sentence here for the rest of this passage. Keep that in mind. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God and... Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's right. The rest of the passage says, for whoever would draw near to God. So faith is about drawing near to God. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, right? Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. Notice that Hebrews eleven six does not say, and without faith it's impossible to please God, uh, for whoever would please God must live a risk-taking life. It doesn't say that at all. Now let's take a listen to uh, what pa- Dr. Paul Kressman had to say about this. So, And you'll keep in mind, his popular commentary at the time he was working with the King James. So we'll hear these same verses from the King James Version. But Dr. Paul Kressman writes, he says, Faith as a trust in that which is invisible and future. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by faith the elders obtained a good report. 
The sacred writer here states the fundamental thought of this chapter, the most impressive section on the power of faith in his entire letter, if not in the whole Bible. He begins with the definition of faith. But faith is a conviction of mind concerning things hoped for and the certainty of things which are not seen. Faith, saving faith, that has accepted Jesus and his righteousness is always and without exception a definite firmness of mind, a certain persuasion concerning the things which God has promised us in his word for the purpose of having us place our hope upon them. It is an unalterable conviction of the heart regarding those things which we cannot see, which it is impossible for our eyes and for our reason and for our understanding to fathom and to know. Faith thus concerns things which are future, though they may have their beginning in this life. It is not an expectation of dreadful happenings, but a hope of blessed glorious gifts. It keeps its peculiar form and characteristics even when it is weak, a mere glowing taper. It is opposed to doubt, and faith is opposed to unbelief. Faith stands firm in all afflictions. Faith overcomes all weakness, for it is in the midst of tribulation and the persecution that faith proves itself a persuasion of the heart that clings to God's promises. These qualities or attributes of faith the author now intends to bring out by referring to a number of examples of men and women of old of the Old Testament. For in this lay the commendation of men of old. It was on the ground of their possessing faith that the leading men of the Old Testament received the commendation of God. Their deeds then being recorded for the benefit of ages to come of the generations of the New Testament. The example of Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do not appear. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it being dead yet speaks. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had his testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith, Noah being warned of God of the things not seen, as yet moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he commended or condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is by faith. The sacred writer begins his recital with a general reference, purposely ascribed not to Adam or any individual believer, but to the believers of all times. By faith, we perceive that the worlds have been framed by the word of God. That what is seen has not come into being out of things which appear. The existence of the world, its creation and preservation, is not a matter of conjecture or of idle guesswork with the Christians, as it is with the heathen and the unbelievers in general, who have astonished the world with theories that challenge the belief even of the credulous. We hold no such vain theories, 
the products of speculation based upon false assumptions. Had the visible universe really been formed out of materials which were subject to our inspection or to the observation of any human beings, then our standpoint would bear the marks of foolish speculation. But the entire manner in which the world came into existence, all parts being adapted to one another and the whole to its purpose, is not a matter of reasonable consideration, but of faith. Faith, is the knowledge which tells us that it was the almighty word of God which called things into being out of nothing, created something which was not there before, and the result of this creative act on the part of almighty God is the existence and preservation of all things which make up the visible universe. Note, it is a matter of comfort to us to know that the same almighty God rules the universe today and that his promise concerning the preservation of the world still stands. See Genesis chapter 8, verse 22. In taking up specific instances, the writer now mentions that of Abel first. By faith, Abel offered to God a more adequate sacrifice than Cain, through which he was attested to as being righteous, God testifying upon his gifts. And through the same, he, though dead, yet speaks. The better, the more excellent, the more adequate sacrifice of Abel, the peculiar value of his offering, was not due to the choice of the materials, but to the fact that he had faith that he believed in the coming Messiah. It was on account of this faith also that God testified of him that he was righteous. See Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, and Matthew 23, 35. God accepted the offering of Abel, indicating his complete satisfaction with the gift and the prayer which accompanied it. He had respect unto him in his offering, as the text in Genesis has it. Thus, the faith of Abel was the reason why God imputed to him the righteousness of the coming Messiah, in whom he placed his hope. Just in what way God showed his acceptance of Abel's sacrifice, whether by having the smoke of its burning arise directly toward the sky, or by having fire fall down from heaven to devour his offering, or by revealing his attitude to Adam as the priest of the family, we do not know. Of one thing we are sure, namely, that his offering was accepted because of his faith. And another fact is to be noted, namely that the murder of Abel was not the end of his activity or influence. Though he is dead, yet he is ever speaking to us. His faith is a shining example to all men as to the manner of obtaining justification, as well as to the necessity of being faithful to the Lord, even if hatred and enmity on the part of the nearest relatives is the result. Next, decided the example of Enoch. By faith, Enoch was translated so that he did not see death. And he was not found because God had translated him. For because his translation, he had his test this testimony that he was well-pleasing to God. Of Enoch, very little is said in scriptures. Um, since the earliest days, the children of God, the descendants of Adam that trusted in the mercy of the coming Messiah, had caused the proclamation of this gospel truth to be made in their midst and had taught it to their children. Thus, Enoch had learned the truth and the way of salvation. Thus, had he come to faith, and therefore he was well-pleasing to God. In this case, therefore, the Lord determined to manifest his good pleasure in a particularly extraordinary way. He removed him from the earth in order that he might not see death. In some form or manner, the Lord took his body away up to the abode of the blessed. And all this because he believed and led a godly life in agreement with his faith, because he walked with God, as the Hebrews text says, uh, has it. 
he was translated, he was removed, he was no longer found. It may well be that his relatives searched for him as the children of the prophets did for Elijah, and that they eventually received information from the Lord as to the method of the relatives' removal from the earth. All of this was the result of his faith. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he exists and that he becomes a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. The author, again, uses the picture of a priest or a worshiper's drawing nigh to God. Such a person that worships God in truth will not only believe in the existence of God, but will know that God will in mercy reward those that seek him, and his gift to them is eternal life through Jesus Christ the Savior. It is he whose Christianity is not a matter of mere form and of outward ceremonies, but a true matter of the heart. He whose faith is of the kind that does not grow weary in seeking the Lord and his holy will that will become a partaker of the Lord's merciful reward. Now, that's Dr. Paul Kretzman, who was a great biblical scholar, commenting on this passage. Anything here about the importance of being a risk taker? Not on your life. Because Hebrews 11.6 does not teach us that we have to be risk takers in order to please God. It teaches us that we need to trust Christ and God's mercy and forgiveness and believe in the promises of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. That's what makes us pleasing before God, the same way Abraham was pleasing that we read earlier in Romans chapter 4. Abram believed God, and God credited to him as righteousness. So now we've got this great passage about saving faith, and Vince Antonucci is making it about risk-taking. We continue. Without risk-taking, you can't please God. See, following Jesus doesn't make my life safe. It exponentially increases my risk factor because I surrendered my life to Jesus, and he will do dangerous things with it. Jesus didn't die to make us safe. He died so that we might die to ourselves, so he can take us where only dead men and dead women dare to go, where the living are just too afraid to enter. Jesus didn't die to make us safe. He died to make us dangerous. If you've, uh, if you've grown up in church or maybe come here for a while, maybe you've heard uh, a story Jesus told that, that's called the parable of the talents. Uh, Jesus tells a story about this rich man who's supposed to represent God and goes on a journey. But before he leaves, he gives money to three servants. And he says, hey, I want you to hold on to this. When I come back, I want it back. Okay? And he goes off on his journey. Well, the, the first two guys, uh, they take that money and they invest it, trying to increase it, uh, but taking the chance that they're going to lose it all. The third guy realizes that it's not his money. It's important. He needs to have it to return back to the guy when he returns. And so he buries it to make sure there's no risk of him losing it. Now think about this. If you had never heard that story, you would totally assume that Jesus would commend the guy in the story who buried his talent, right? But because he was safe about it. He didn't risk losing money that wasn't his. I mean, the other two guys, they took a big gamble with the talents they were given. Now, by the way, this story, you can find it in Matthew chapter 25, and it's important to note this. The story, the parable of the talents, is part of a three-part series of parables that Jesus tells regarding the eschaton, regarding the last days. Okay? The first one being the story of the wise and foolish virgins. The second is the story or the parable of the talents. And the third, then, is the story or the parable of the sheep and the goats. 
Okay, All of this is pointing to the end of the world. This is an eschatological parable. This is not a parable telling us the importance of risk-taking. Let me read it for you. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. And to one he had given five talents, another two, and another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. Now, one of the things I point out when I teach this passage, I think it is confusing to translate the word uh, for talent as talent. Okay, the reason I say it's it's confusing is because when we hear talent, what the when we hear that word, we think of uh, somebody who's trying out for American Idol, somebody who's a gifted basketball player or a gifted musician or a gifted singer. Okay, I think it's far better to go with the Greek word talanton because that is a measure of money, and you don't mess up in in because I think a lot of people go wrong here. When they, they they understand talents here to mean something that I'm good at. No, talent is a measure of gold, 100 pounds, okay? So he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had tal- uh, the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now I'm going to pause here for a second and note something here. Remember Hebrews 11.6 now. Now we understand what it's rightly talking about. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Okay, And this is not talking about risk-taking. It's about faithfully trusting in the good mercy and promises of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ. So in this parable, two people have faith. One doesn't have faith. The one who does nothing with his talent is the one who has no faith, and he doesn't think well of the master. He thinks really poorly of the master, and it shows, and we'll get there in a second. But keep that in mind. A right understanding of faith here uh, helps you understand and rightly unlock this passage. So, he who had the two talents made two talents, but he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, why did the guy go and do business in the name of the master? Because he had faith in the master. He believed well of him, right? His master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also and he also, who had the two talents came forward saying, master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set, uh, set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So we got two people here who have faith in the master. They believe the best of him. Okay? Not so the guy with the one talent. Nope. Listen to this man talk. He has no faith in the master and thinks evil of him. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. Uh Uh-huh. That one had no faith. I mean, he really had no faith. He he thought the worst of the master, that the master was evil. And those who do not trust Christ, they believe God is out to get them. They don't see him as merciful and kind and forgiving and gracious. 
No, they see him as stern and hard and always looking down at them, right? So, you know, they don't do business in the name of Jesus because they, they, they don't have faith in Jesus. Without faith, it's impossible. This isn't about risk-taking. It's about true faith. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground where you, uh, you here, have what's yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. And then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given, more will be given, and he who and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast that worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this is important. Cast that worthless servant into outer darkness. This is a parable of judgment parable of the eschaton. Do people go to hell because they didn't work, because they weren't risk takers? Or do they go to hell because they didn't have faith in Christ? The answer is they didn't have faith in Christ. Because by works of the law, no human being will be saved, Scripture says. So why is this man going to hell? For impenitent non-faith. That's why. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. But now, uh, Vince Antonucci, because he's completely twisted now, uh, you know, Hebrews eleven six now sees uh, Matthew 25 as a story about risk-taking. No, it's not. It's a story about faith and not having faith. We continue. But Jesus doesn't commend the guy who buried the money. He, he actually calls him wicked and lazy. And, and what we learn in this story is uh, you can't please God by playing it safe. Jesus doesn't want us to play it safe. He wants us to play it dangerous. Faith is risk. And a life of faith is a life of risk-taking. Do you know who we see this with in the Bible? Everyone. Every single person. There is not a single person in the Bible who God speaks to, who God calls, who God gives a task, and that person says, yeah, I could do that. That never happens in the Bible. Every single person that God speaks to calls to some task, they all go, I can't do that. That's too big for me. You got the wrong person. God, whenever he speaks in the Bible, always, without exception, calls people to risk. So let's wrestle with some questions. Like first question, why? Why does God want us to risk? Well, one reason I think is because God wants us to live with a vital reliance on him and to form a deep bond with him through that reliance. That's how you bond with somebody. It's when you need them, right? But but listen, if we're playing it safe... So it's a bonding thing? Uh, what passage of scripture says that? We don't need God, right? And, and so, of course, God is going to lead us to places we would never dare go on our own. God also wants us to risk because he wants us to be people who live by faith. And faith requires risk. If there's no risk, there's no faith required. Right? Again, he is not showing this from any clear passages. He's showing this by pulling Hebrews eleven six out of context and then completely misreading uh, the story of the uh, talents. This this isn't based on any clear passage that says any of these things. Maybe we could say it this way. It's like risk, like this situation that presents this risk. Risk leads to fear, right? And God calls us to have our response to fear be 
faith. It's like, yes, you're afraid, but you just keep moving forward despite your fear. Now, there is another option. Risk leads to fear, and our response to fear is run, right? It's like, I don't like that. I don't, I don't like that feeling of fear. And so I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to move forward. I'm going I'm to move away from this. But God says, no, let your response to fear be faith. This is why, do you know what the most repeated command of God in the Bible is? There's one thing God tells us way more than anything else. Hundreds of times in the Bible, there's one command of God. Fear not. It's the most repeated thing God tells people in the Bible. And the reason is because God's always calling people to something scary. And so he has to keep reassuring people, fear not, don't fear, it's okay. See, we all want to live risk-free, but God wants us to live free to risk. A third reason I think God calls us to risk is because God wants to show the world how great God is. That's the deal. God wants to know the world and know him and know his greatness. But how can the world see God's greatness in us if we do what we can do on our own? What kind of argument is that? The Apostle Paul tells Christians to live quietly and work with their hands, making enough money to care for themselves and having a little extra to care for those in need. It doesn't take any major risk-taking. There isn't a passage of Scripture that says, uh, in order for the world to see that God is working in us, he has to give us something impossible to do. There's no passage that says this. This is all just coming out of the imagination of Vince Antonucci. If I do what I can do on my own, people see me. But when I'm called to something beyond myself, people get to see God in me. I like how a um, a Christian author named Henry Blackaby talks about this. He writes in a book. Yeah, Blackaby uh, from the Experiencing God fame. By the way, flat out mystical heresy. And he completely mangles God's word, basically saying, you know, that passage in John chapter 5 where Jesus says that, you know, I always see the works that the Father is doing and do them, you know, that kind of thing. And then we're supposed to be like Jesus and do the same thing. That is not what that passage says at all. The whole Henry Blackaby thing, it basically teaches mysticism and it mangles God's word to try to teach it. Some people say, God will never ask me to do something I can't do. I have come to the place in my life that if the assignment I sense God is giving me is something I know I can handle, I know it's probably not from God. The kind of assignments God gives in the Bible are always God-sized. They're always beyond what people can do because he wants to demonstrate his nature, his strength, his provision, and his kindness to his people and to a watching world. This is the only way the world will come to know him. No, it's not. The way the world will come to know him is through the preaching of the gospel. That's what we're called to do. How can they believe in one whom they've never heard? You know, they, you know, so he sends people to preach. This is what God's word says. God giving us God-sized dreams that we're supposed to fulfill that are, we can't fulfill because they're impossible is not some evangelistic technique in, revealed in scripture. This is utter nonsense. God wants us to risk. He wants us to have a risk-taking faith. But there's a problem. And the problem is we love to play it safe. We do. We all do. We, we love to play it safe. Christians love to play it safe. So let's wrestle with that one. Why? Why do Christians love to play it safe? Now, I, I think for some of us, maybe it's a lack of understanding. 
we've been taught wrong. We've been taught uh, that following Jesus should make our lives safe, but it shouldn't. It should make our lives dangerous. Maybe you've heard this. Uh, Christians like to say this. Maybe you've heard this like in a church somewhere. Um, People say this. They say, the safest place in the entire world is at the center of God's will. You ever heard that? And that belongs on like a coffee mug, doesn't it? And then it's like, the safest place in the entire world. (sighs) It's at the center of God's will. It sounds really nice. And there's some truth in that. But it's also true that the most dangerous place in the world is at the center of God's will. There's a guy in the Bible named Paul, the the apostle Paul. And and this is a guy who like left everything behind to to truly follow Jesus and and, and sought to live his entire life at the center of God's will. And uh, there's a passage in the Bible where he's writing this letter and he describes what that looked like for him. What what did his life become because he was at the center of God's will? And and I want to show it to you. It's in the the Bible book called 2 Corinthians and it's in uh, chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 23 and we'll put those verses on the screen. So he says, are they servants of Christ? He's referring to some other people who are claiming to follow Jesus. He says, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. And here's how he proves it. Okay. Here's how he proves. I'm really at the center of God's will. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, whipped, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Let's just pause there for a second because at my church in Las Vegas, I would need to explain to my people, not that kind of stoned. But you guys get it, right? Yeah? We're good? Because my people will be like, I've been stoned too. What does that got to do with anything? You guys get it? We're good? Okay. All right. Um, So he says, once I was stoned... Three times I was shipwrecked, which I just think is two times too many. You know, after the first time I'm shipwrecked, I'm like, I'm done with ships. But, but three times I was shipwrecked. He says, I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Someone forgot to tell Paul how safe the center of God's will is, didn't they? Because had he been given that insight, he would have known that apparently he was far outside of God's will because of all the danger he was experiencing. Yeah, and keep in mind, he was experiencing this as a result of his testimony to Christ being the Messiah, the promised Messiah of Israel, and the only way of salvation. That's why. Not because he was following some dangerous destiny plan thing, you know, kind of, that's not what that's about. It's about the fact that he was willing to take the hit for preaching Christ. Unless, unless the center of God's will is also a very dangerous place. Why do Christians love to play it safe? For some, I think maybe it's just a lack of understanding. I thought I was supposed to. But for most of us, the problem is fear. Now notice, he's just saying play it safe in an abstract kind of way. This is an abstraction. Oh, Christians just like to play it safe. Play it safe towards what? 
Play it safe towards the stock market. Probably a smart idea. Play it safe while you know while driving through a rough part of town. Not make eye contact. Probably a good idea. All right. There's certain things you ought to play it safe. Play it safe by observing the uh, the speed limit. Probably a good idea. You know. Okay. So he's just talking about playing it safe. That's not good. But he's made it an abstraction because it, Christians are not called to, to risk it all, all the time in all circumstances. Where we're, our big risk is, is in taking the risk of telling people to repent of their wickedness and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. That's the risk that we're called to take, not other stupid stuff. We, we love to play it safe because risk... It induces fear. And it's really hard to overcome our fear. But we have to. We have to because doing anything great in life requires risk. Isn't that true? Anything you can do great in life or anything that might produce greatness requires risk. Like... So now this is so the apostle Paul uh, he he was just an example of the risk that you can take, you know, in doing anything great in life. That's not why he suffered. He suffered because he preached Christ and him crucified for our sins. Trying out for the team, taking the last second shot, going to college, starting a new job, uh, launching a new product or or a new company, getting married, staying married, having a baby, uh, going on a mission trip or, or becoming a missionary, starting a Bible study or a ministry or a church, anything that has the potential to produce greatness requires risk but there's a problem risk induces fear not always to the same degree but risk always induces fear and fear can keep us from taking the risks that god calls us to take right whether it's a risk in the bible you know god just black and white tells us to do something or maybe it's just something like kind of god nudges you kind of whispers in your ear and you realize i think god wants me to do this risk fear can can keep us from taking that risk that God calls us to take. So that means fear can keep us from living a faithful life. Fear can lead us to disobey God. No, let's really think about that just for a minute. Oh, man. Fear can cause us to disobey God. So apparently, you know, he's talking here about disobeying God in that still, small voice prompting thing going on. Yeah, How do you know that's God and not just a bad piece of pizza? If God commands you to do something and you don't do it because of fear, whether it's, you know, fear of what people will think of you or fear about what this person is going to say about you or or, or fear if I did that, what would it do to my financial situation? You mean like God's commandments and the Ten Commandments? You will have no other gods before me, honor your father and mother, thou shalt not steal, commit adultery, uh, covet, you know, things like that? If God calls us to do something and we don't do it because of fear then doesn't that mean that you are giving that other person or that other thing, whatever it is that you fear, higher priority, a higher position, more authority in your life than you give to God? And so really, that other thing, that's your God. Right? The truth is, that's what you truly worship. Whatever you fear the most, that's your God. And fear can keep us from living faithful lives. So, 
here's why I'm here today. Fear can keep you from have, living a faithful life. There isn't a day that goes by that you don't sin, and you have to pray, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What is this theology? It's not found in the Bible. I, I wrote this book, Renegade, and I came here today for the same reason. It's to give you permission. And what I want to do is I want to teach you a secret that can help you to overcome fear. This is like real. It actually works. Okay. And so the deal is uh, this secret can give you the courage to take the risk that you normally wouldn't take because of fear. It will give you the courage to jump when everyone else is still sitting on the bench. Because whether or not you take a risk it is generally based on the amount of fear it induces. But if you learn the secret, it will allow you to overcome your fear. Do you guys want to hear the secret? And there's like two or three people who do. I'll talk to you, everybody else. You can listen if you want. So you found a secret, huh? That it's not in the Bible. Here's the secret. Your willingness to risk is based on the potential return. And so to take the risk, you have to focus on the potential return. I'll explain what I mean. So your willingness to risk is based on the potential return. So for instance... um, Would you run into a burning house? No. Why? Well, it's a risk, right? I I might get my body burned up. I might die. That leads to fear. I don't want that to happen. So I'm not going to run in the house. I'm going to run the other direction, right? But, But let's change the scenario. Would you run into a burning house if you realized your pet goldfish was inside? No. Why? Because it's still the same risk. I might get burned up. I might die. It still leads to the same fear. And the idea of saving my goldfish is not going to allow me to overcome my fear and take the risk, right? But let's change the scenario one more time. Would you run into a burning house if you realized your kid was inside? Yes, you would, right? Absolutely. Wait, 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 wait. Same risk. I might get burned up. I might die, right? Same fear, but you'd go running into the house. Why? Because you'd realize the potential return is worth the risk and it would allow you to overcome your fear, right? See, your willingness to risk is always based on the potential return. Uh, Let's look at this another way. Um, Let's say uh, that I I told you, hey, today, the real reason I'm here, I came to gamble with you. I'm from Vegas now. And so I came to gamble. Here's what we're going to do. I want to meet each of you in the lobby and we're going to make a bet. 50-50, 50-50, we're going to flip a coin. Okay, you get to call in the air and you're going to put up $100 on this flip of the coin. I'm going to put up 10. So if you guess it right, you get my $10. But if you're wrong, I get your 100. Would you take that bet? No, you wouldn't. Why? Because there's a risk. 50-50, I'm going to lose. There's fear, right? I, I can't afford to lose $100. I don't want to lose. Yeah, th- boy, this is so profound. I mean, whew. Yeah, I could have never figured this out on my own. I'm so glad Vince Antonucci found out that secret right there. Ooh, boy. It's going to revolutionize my spiritual experience. This is ridiculous. It's not even biblical. And so you're not going to take that risk. You're going to walk away from it. But let's change the scenario. Let's say uh, I said to you, hey, same thing. Flip a coin, 50-50. You put up $100. I'll put up a million. Okay, so, so if you guess it right, you get my million dollars. If you guess it wrong, I get your 100. Would you take that bet? Yes, you would. Even if you're totally opposed to gambling, right? You'd be like, just this once. I've been preaching against gambling for years, but surely God will understand one time, one time, right? Yeah, you take, yeah. But wait, 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 wait. Same risk, 50-50, same fear. I might lose $100. I can't afford to lose $100, but you take that risk in a second. Why? 
because of the potential return, right? The, the, the possibility of winning a million dollars would allow you to overcome your fear and take the risk. See, your willingness to risk is always based on potential return. And the reason most Christians won't take the risk necessary to obey God and to really have influence in the world for him is because they stare at the risk and they're stopped by their fear. It's like, why won't most Christians tithe? Uh, God commands, you know, we be No, God does not command Christians to tithe. That is absolutely patently false. Go through the archives of Fighting for the Faith. I cover this extensively, especially you know, look up the uh, episodes we've done against Robert Morris. Back to him, we give him at least 10% of our income. Why don't most Christians do that? Because there's a risk, right? I, I would have to live off of only 90% of my salary. There's fear. I, I can barely live off of 100% of my salary. What if I can't make it financially? And so we run away from doing what God calls us to do. Why don't most Christians volunteer? Well, there's a risk. I'm already overwhelmed with all my... So notice the examples here have to do with things that make a seeker-driven church thrive. Tithing and volunteering at church. Oh, yeah, risky stuff for sure. I don't know if I can handle the time that it takes to volunteer. There's fear there. And so we don't do what God's called us to do. Why don't most Christians share their faith? Throughout the Bible, God says, hey, let people who don't know me know about me. Talk about Jesus. Most now, people- this is the part where I would say, hey, he's got a point. But the problem is, is that the point that he's made, the way he's you know, set this all up, it's based upon a false reading of Hebrews eleven six and the parable of the talents. He's completely mangled God's word. You know, it's true that a lot of Christians fear sharing their faith. This portion of it is correct. That's a valid fear that many people who confess faith in Christ have. The problem is, is that now he said that, well, unless you're a risk taker, you can't please God. So if you're not taking a risk and sharing your faith, you're probably not even saved because you're not pleasing God. Every day I say 95% of Christians will never share their faith. Why? To risk. What if I don't do it very well? What if I can't explain it very well? What if they ask questions and I don't know the answers? What if they reject me for trying to, you know, push Jesus on them? And so there's a risk. There's all these fears. And so instead of doing what God's called us to do, we go the other way. Right? Listen, when we stare at the risk, we're stopped by our fear. But the way to take the risk is by staring at the potential return. Changes everything so, so here's a personal example. Um, my family and I uh, started a church in Virginia Beach, Virginia, uh, back in 1998. Church took off, grew, did great. We loved it. We loved living there. All our friends were there. We were going to stay there forever. And then God, in a variety of ways, made it clear to us that he wanted us to move to Las Vegas and start a church right in the middle of Sin City. And it was a risk. In fact, we uh, called some pastors in Las Vegas and said, hey, man, what do you think about this? And and what they said to me was, Vince, if you go to Las Vegas and start a church out in the suburbs, you will do great. You'll probably be more successful than you are in Virginia. But if you come, like you're talking, and you start a church anywhere near the Strip, it will fail. In fact, what I was told was, uh, you won't even have a first Sunday. Like, I don't even think you get a church started in that area. Risk. Lots of fear. But we started thinking about the potential return. It's like, man, there are people who work on and live around the Strip that, that just aren't being reached. Nobody's even really focusing on them. And if we could like, just reach a couple of those people, their lives would be changed for all eternity. God's calling us to do this. There's a lot of fear. But, but if we just stare at the potential return, 
we can overcome our fear and take the risk that God's calling us to take. And that's exactly what we did. And in the last three years, we have reached pimps and prostitutes and gambling addicts and, and drug addicts and, and casino workers and, and you name it. And, and I'll tell you this, uh, the risk, totally worth it. Totally worth it. And, and the same is true in your lives as well. Lives are impacted forever when you're generous with your money, when you volunteer in your church, when you share your faith with your friends. Their, their lives are impacted for all eternity. And our lives are impacted as well. Because our lives are actually making a difference for God. It doesn't change the risk involved. It doesn't take away the fear, but it allows us to overcome our fear when we stare at the potential return of the risk. In fact, when we stare at the potential return, what we begin to realize is it's actually a bigger risk not to tithe. It's a bigger risk to not volunteer in my church. It's a bigger risk to not share my faith. Because look at the eternal impact I won't have on people. Your willingness to risk is based on the potential return. It always is. And the potential return of really living your life for God, taking whatever risk faith requires, is totally worth it. So the key for anyone and everyone to, to be willing to overcome fear, able to overcome fear, is to focus on the potential return instead of focusing on the risk and, and the fear. But check this out. This is cool. Those of us who follow Jesus, we actually have another factor that allows us to overcome fear and take our risks. And it's the catcher. The catcher. There's a guy named Henry Nowen. Henry Nowen was in ministry. He was a professor, wrote another mystic books. And when he was in his late 60s, uh, Henry Nowen went to see the Flying Rodleys, which was a, a trapeze troupe. And uh, he knew the owners of the show. They invited him. He went and sat in the audience and he's watching this amazing show, you know, people being launched out, flying and flipping through the sky and then getting caught. And, and, and he started looking around at the, the other audience members and he realized that like him, everyone was transfixed by the flyer, the, the person who goes soaring through the sky and doing these flips, and no one pays any attention to the catcher. You know, there's always this person who catches them when they're done and puts them back on the podium, and then they launch somebody else out, and they flip, and then somebody catches them. No one pays any attention to the catcher. They're always looking at the flyer. But Henry now realized that the, the person flying through the sky would never be willing to take the risk if it wasn't for the catcher. After the show, uh, Henry now went to his friends who own the show. He said, thank you so much for having me. They said, oh, we're so glad. And he said, I have a question. Is there any chance you would let me fly through the sky like those people were? And they said, are you sure? And he said, yeah. And they said, all right. And, and so Henry now, late 60s, climbs up the ladder, goes all the way up to the top podium. They strap a harness on him. And, and he's given just a little bit of instruction before he launches out with his arms outstretched. Here, here's what he was told. This is good. He was told, the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. He must wait in absolute trust. The catcher will catch him, but he must wait. His job is not to flail about in anxiety. In fact, if he does, it could kill him. His job is to be still, to wait. And then this old former Harvard professor flew, giggling, <laughs> through the air, and was caught. 
And he said, could I do that again? And they said, sure. And they launched him out and he flew through the air, was caught. And he said, one more time. And, and again and again, he went flying through the sky, taking what looked to be big risks, but realizing he was actually safe the whole time because of the catcher. He later wrote about the experience and what he learned from it. He said this, if we are to take risks to be free in the air or in life, we have to know there's a catcher. We have to know that when we come down from it all, we're going to be caught. We're going to be safe. The great hero is the least visible. Trust the catcher. I am... I started out by telling you a story about a time when I inspired my wife to do something she didn't want to do, take a little bit of a risk. Uh, Let me tell you, uh, I'll end by telling you another one of those stories. So again, who's the catcher? Well, apparently Jesus is, but you you can't even please him unless you're out there taking big risks. Uh, in the summer of 1998, we lived in Virginia Beach, uh, and one Saturday morning, we decided to go to the beach and swim a little bit. And so it was a nice day. So we drove down on the beach. Uh, we started walking up to the beach, and we noticed that there were red... So we're getting another Vince Antonucci story. ...flags on the lifeguard stations. I don't know if they do this in California, but red flags in lifeguard stations mean you're not to go into the water, certainly not deep because the undertow is so strong, the waves are so big, and so you can only kind of stay kind of around, you know, up to your knees... And so my wife sees him and says, hey, do you just want to go home? We're not going to be able to swim. And I said, oh, we're going to swim. And she said, well, we can't, the red flags. And I said, please, we're on a personality disorder. And so, um, so we, we went in, and there was actually like, I don't know, 10 or 10 kids all running around, uh, like up to their knees. And so we're kind of walking like up to our ankles. I said, let's go a little bit deeper. So we went to our knees and said, listen, let's go a little bit deeper. We went to our waist, and, and then we went a little bit deeper, and, um, and, and the undertow was like, man, overwhelming. And so it was kind of pulling us out too. And eventually we realized, oh man, we're way, way out here. And uh, we, we couldn't touch bottom anymore. And so my wife was like, I can't touch bottom. And I was like, it's fine. And then boom, this huge wave crashed over us. And she went, I, I really can't touch bottom. And I said, you're fine. And then another wave, boom, over us. And the girl lost her mind. She turned to me and she screamed and she went, I'm drowning, I'm drowning. And I said, you're not drowning. Just, you know, swim, swim in. And she goes, I can't swim. She can totally swim. She's like, I can't swim, I can't swim. And I'm like, yes, you can just swim in. And she's like, I can't. And, and so I thought, oh, this is going to be kind of cool. I'm going to get to see like a lifeguard save my life. So there's going to be an application to our lives from this? Really? Uh, I can't wait to apply this to my life. This would be cool. And um, I look in, and the lifeguard is, like, just watching all the little kids running around, not paying any attention to us. Doesn't seem to know we're out there, which is my fault. We weren't supposed to be out there. And, uh, and so I'm like, hey, hey, and he's not paying any attention. can't hear us. And my wife, another wave, oh, dry, dry. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to have to save her. Now, I will tell you at this point that I have never taken a lifeguarding lesson. I've never even seen an episode of Baywatch. And, and so I know nothing about lifeguarding, but I'm like, how hard can this be? So I, I swim over to grab her and start swimming in. And when I go to grab her, she goes like this and grabs me like by my head and goes, whoom, and puts me under. And I came popping out and I went, I'm drowning, I'm drowning. <laughs> and I was like, Phew. I was like, don't do that. Phew, waves are still coming. I'm like, don't do that. Like, let me just grab you. And so I started to swim over and she did it again. She grabbed me by the head and boom, put me under. And I came, thought, oh, we're going to die. I, w- I mean, there's like 20 people a year who die at that beach. And I'm like, we're going to be some of those people. Who knew? 
Like I never would have thought it. And so, um, and so I thought, okay, I need to save her, and this this is not working. So I I, I got this quick plan. I thought I'm going to to grab her and not let her grab me. And so I swam over, and she's like this at me, and so I'm like like this. And, uh, and eventually like she reached out and I grabbed her hand and, and I just started swimming towards shore, like pulling her by the hand. But the undertow was so bad. I did like two or three strokes and I'm like, and, and so I thought maybe I got her in far enough that maybe she could stand. So I let go. I said, stand up. And she tried. She's like, I can't, I can't. I'm like, okay, okay. And so I grabbed her again and did like two more strokes. Stand up. I can't, I can't. And I just kept doing this. And I'm just going to be honest with you. There were times where I reached out and grabbed her by her hair. And so, like, I'm pulling her in like a caveman. <laughs> and, uh, like, by her bathing suit. I mean, it was bad. And every two or three strokes, I'd be like, stand up. And she'd be like, I can't, I can't. And she, she like, lost faith that she'd ever be able to stand. And so, like, she wasn't even trying. She's like, I can't. like, try. She's like, I can't. And so I would do two more. Finally, and this is a true story. Is there a payoff at the end of this? How is this going to make me closer to Jesus? I got her in so far that I said, Jen, stand up. And she said, I can't, I can't. She's flailing around. But I got her in so far that all those little kids made a circle around her. And they're all standing there. She's laying on her back like this. And they all start saying, stand up, lady. It's easy. We can do it. Come on. So she opens her eyes and sees all these little faces and, uh, and she got up and walked in, and it was pretty funny. <laughs> Listen, we don't take risks because we're afraid. We're afraid it'll be too much for us. What, what was the purpose of that story again? Because that was a needless risk. That was a foolish risk. That was a risk that could have resulted in the death of your wife or yourself. Jesus doesn't call us to take those kinds of risks. What was the purpose of that story? Afraid will drown. But let me just assure you that God is not an oblivious or uncaring lifeguard far away at the, on the beach. Right? God, when he... Comes- and lifeguards are not uncaring. They're very vigilant. Jump in. is right there with you. And he will not let you drown. He will get you through whatever it is that you need to go through. And so I wonder what risk God is calling you to take today. Whatever that risk is, maybe it's uh, to give your life to Jesus for the first time. Maybe to, to get back. Why would I need to give my life to Jesus after listening to those stories? I haven't learned anything about Jesus, except for maybe he'd be mad at me if I didn't take risks. To begin that relationship with him, or, or maybe it is to tithe, or to volunteer, or to, to, uh, to, to share your faith with a friend, or to get in, uh, to a small group, or maybe to, to start a ministry, or to go on a... Get into a small group, there's a risk. Trip, ...or to become a missionary, whatever it is, you can get off the bench and you can jump in. You have permission. And remember, the return is worth the risk. And if you stare at that potential return, you can overcome your fear. And when you run up and you jump, man, you're going to be so filled with fear. And you're going to feel like I am flying through the air and I am all alone and there is no net below me. But the truth is, you are not alone. There is an invisible hero whose eye is always on you and his arms are always outstretched towards yours. And you can trust the catcher. Let's pray. Done. So there you go. 
another one of those seeker-driven, take-risk sermons. And, of course, you know, the big risk, tithe. You know, another big risk, um, be in a small group. Another big volunteer at, at a seeker-driven church because they can't operate without all of that money and um, free labor. Man, and all of it based upon a complete twisting of Hebrews 11, verse 6. Absolutely sad and tragic. And the takeaway is is that people are going to leave there feeling that God's angry at them because they haven't been a risk taker. Because they just heard that without faith it's impossible to please God. And that means being a risk taker. So they are going to leave despondent knowing they haven't pleased God because they haven't risked enough. Salvation by a risk. That's not what the scriptures teach. Salvation is a free gift of God. And it comes by grace through faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. But the one who has faith believes in the promises of God for the forgiveness of sins. And because of that, God counts that faith as righteousness. Romans chapter 4 makes that very clear. Sad, absolutely sad what we heard tonight. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. For all of your sins. Amen.